0: This will be our last baseball reference, probably, for the next six six weeks. But uh, 2004, the year 2004, crazy year. A lot of things were happening. Not the greatest year in my young seventh grade life. Uh, The war in Iraq had started like the year before. Uh, War in Afghanistan two years before. Uh, Gas prices, not as high as today, but gas prices be going up. And uh, the Boston Red Sox were good, right? Very bad time for me as a Yankee fan, right? But 2004, it's October, uh, ALCS, that means the championship series. So for basketball people, that's like Eastern Conference Finals, right? One step away from the World Series, like literally one game away because the Yankees were up three games to nothing. And I remember very distinctly before game four, it was in Boston, and, like, you had all these Boston people, and they were coming like, yo, yeah, we we're, you know, we're going to lose the series, but it was a great year. You know, like, whatever, we had a good run, blah, blah, blah. Why did they say that? Because never before in the history of the top, like, it happened before in hockey, but, like, let's be real, no one watches hockey. All right. In the history of baseball, that's 150 years. Never has a team come back down three games to nothing. So everyone was just like, yeah, it's not our year. It's not our year, boys. I'm sure you can figure out what happened that day, and then the next day, then the day after that. Red Sox win, Red Sox win, Red Sox win, Red Sox win. The Red Sox would go on to win eight straight games, to not only beat the Yankees in the American League Championship Series, but to sweep the St. Louis Cardinals in four games in the World Series breaking their curse. They had not won a World Series since 1918. That's World War I. Not even World War II, that's World War I, okay? And they continue, well, they kind of suck this year, but that was a very bad year. And, you, and I, as a Yankee fan, as a, as a diehard baseball fan at the time, I'm like, how could this possibly have happened? That this thing, it was not supposed to be this way we had a 3 games to none lead one of the most dominant pitching staffs and the most dominant lineups in baseball and we couldn't finish the job this was not supposed to happen it was a reversal a complete the complete opposite of what was supposed to be <clears throat> that's just the baseball game that's just sports yes a multi-billion dollar industry, but really has no, no real effect on at least my life, right? But there are things that happen in our lives where we ask the same exact question, right? How why are things going the way they are? It is not supposed to be this way. I'm sure we all know that one person, you know, they've never smoked, they never drank. Uh, my boss's uh, father-in-law was like this. He never smoked, never drank, but lung cancer died at like 50. Um, we know, uh, <laughs> we see you know, loving marriages just collapse because someone made a very bad decision one night and the families are destroyed. And we see countless examples in other people's lives and in our lives too, right? Where we say, We've done all the right things. We've done what we're supposed to do, and yet nothing has worked out the way it has supposed to. And that is the reality of the world we live in. Uh, the reality of the world is that because this world is tainted with sin, and the world is made up of people who sin and are filled with it and filled with the wickedness and rebellion against God that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 1. Because of that, even when we do the things that we want to do, the things that we don't want happening keep happening. That is the nature of sin, and that is the nature of the wrath of God over creation. But the gospel of Christ, indeed the gospel of Christ that is... That is overflowing from every page of this book, from Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, and at the very end, come, Lord Jesus. From the beginning of the pages of the Bible to the very end, we see the gospel hope of Jesus Christ for sinners like you and me. We see the gospel hope of Christ for a world that is utterly broken. And even here, in the, page, in the last two chapters of Esther, in the first couple of verses, man, you, you, you read what happened. In the twelfth month, on this very day, where the Jews were going to be destroyed, what does the writer of Esther say? The reverse occurred. The reverse occurred. For here's the thing, the reality of the world that we live in, is brokenness. The reality of the world that we live in is sin. The reality of the world that we live in is rebellion, not only against God, but against one another. And we see uh, the, the dark heartedness that man has for one another. And yet, when God enters the picture, when the grace of Christ enters the picture, what happens? The reverse occurs. And so, we're going to, by these two chapters in Esther, we're going to examine three ways in which the gospel of Christ reverses everything, right? The first one is this, that we were meant to die, but the reverse occurred. We were meant to die, but the reverse occurred. Think about uh, the context of these Jews, On this very day, the day was marked out. It was signed with the king's ring. Nothing could change this. The Jews from India to Ethiopia were meant to be annihilated. What happens instead? What happens is that not only are the Jews spared, but the enemies of the Jews are destroyed instead. Not only are the enemies of the Jews destroyed instead, but the sons of Haman, the the man who masterminded this whole plot, his sons are not only killed, but they are hanged on the gallows. Here's the thing about being hanged, especially in Jewish culture, according to the Old Testament. You you might read that um, in Galatians, right, Paul refers to this fact that everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Cursed is the one who is hanged on a tree. Why? Because that was the ultimate sign of God's curse upon you if that happened to you. If you were hanged, if, the, if your punishment for whatever you may have done was a hanging, that was the highest form of God's wrath and curse upon you. Not only that, but it is the lowest and most demeaning thing that they could do to you, right? Notice how, like, in a lot of the Levitical law, like, they don't kill you by hanging. They kill you by stoning, right? Why? Because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so... To have, to have, hang, and I don't know if Haman knows the theology behind this, right? But to have hanged Mordecai, which was the original plan, right? To have hanged Mordecai upon this would have been, it would have sucked because he'd be dead. But it'd be even worse because of the theological and spiritual implications that that has on Mordecai, not only on Mordecai but his family and the generations that came before him and after him. It is the ultimate curse. But when Haman's sons are hanged, instead of the Jewish people, when Haman's sons are hanged, it is meant to show what happens to those who threaten God's people. This is, right? Uh, Haman originally wanted Mordecai hanged, and he's like, this is what happens if you don't bow down to me. But instead, Haman's sons are hanged in order to show what happens when you threaten God's people. But here is the bad news before the the good news. The bad news is the greatest threat to God's people, and hopefully that's you and hopefully that's me, the greatest threat to God's people is God's people themselves. The greatest threat to God's people, the greatest threat to our own holiness, our own goodness, our own pursuit of righteousness is ourselves. That's why Paul laments in chapter 7 of Romans, right? Why do I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I do want to do? The greatest threat to God's people is God's people themselves and here is the amazing gospel truth which leads to a gospel hope which leads to gospel peace in us. That the demonstration of God's wrath was not in the hanging of God's people who most deserved it, who was most uh, obstructive to their own holiness and goodness and righteousness. And indeed, God's people are the ones who are chasing after idols and chasing after all the things that they think will fulfill them and satisfy them that's not God. But here's the thing, that God's wrath was not in the hanging of God's people, but God's wrath was demonstrated in the hanging of God's only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And we think about what Paul again says in Galatians, cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. The greatest deepest curse that one could inflict upon a man was the one that was inflicted upon God's own son. Why? Because the wrath that was meant for us, the wrath that was meant for us was placed upon the pierced hands and the pierced feet and the pierced crown of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is our greatest hope. That is our greatest peace. Because no matter what happens in this life, no matter what we may be going through, Christ has died for you. The ultimate curse. And we live in a world that is yet broken. And we have hearts that, in which the remnant of sin, yes, still does remain. And yet, and yet we are freed from the bondage of sin. We no longer have to say yes to sin, but we can say yes to Christ. Why? Because Christ himself has died on the cross for me. And he has died on the cross for you, if you would put your faith in him. We were meant to die because of our sin and our wickedness and rebellion against God. But the reverse occurred, and Christ has died for us. That's the one. Number two, because we were meant to die... Our enemies were meant to celebrate. Our enemies were meant to celebrate, but the reverse occurred. Our enemies were meant to celebrate, but the reverse occurred. This day that is spoken about in Esther chapter 9 is the very day on which the enemies of the Jews, and there are plenty, and indeed even today the enemies of God's people are aplenty. It was a, me- it was a day that was meant for their celebration. Finally, we can get rid of this scourge. Finally, we can get rid of these problems, and we can take their money, take their property, and things are going to be amazing for us. The day that was meant to mark the total destruction and annihilation of God's people seemed inevitable because, again, it was through the edict of the king that this day was put into law. And yet, and yet, the enemies of God will not have their celebration. Why? Because the salvation of God's people, the reversal of the celebration of God's enemies, the salvation of God's people was the actual inevitability. You might, they might think, they might have thought that it's inevitable, we're going to die, and these Jews are going to die because the king of Persia has said so. But here's the real inevitability, that the people of God will have the day of salvation. The day of salvation will be for my people. Why? Because I am not simply the king over Persia, but I am king over all the nations and all of creation and all of the universe. And I say, You are free and you are saved. God and his day of salvation is the inevitable because nothing can change our king's edict. Nothing can change our God's promises. And God has promised from the very outset of man's sin, he has promised one who will come. He has promised a messiah. Who will come and not only conquer the death that was meant for us but to quash the thing that have that has caused our death penalty which is our sin a messiah from the root of jesse who's going to come and make all things new and make all things right and god never breaks his promises for all god's promises are yes and amen in the messiah who not only Will come, but has come, and will come again. Indeed, even in you know, we, we read the, we read this story, and it's very violent, very violent part of part of a part of the Book of Esther. But even this, even this, this mass destruction of God's enemies, that is a fulfillment of God's promises. Remember, way back when when we introduced who Haman was, right, the Agagite, right. This is a fulfillment of the holy war. That, and I know holy war is a little uh, funny phrase these days, but this is a fulfillment of the holy war that God had commanded Saul to carry out. You need to wipe these people out, but do not take the plunder. And notice how many times the author of Esther writes that phrase. They laid no hands on the plunder. Why? Because destruction, this, this wasn't for their own gain per se. This wasn't so that, oh, we can take over them, and then now we can take all their stuff. No, this was a fulfillment, a completion of God's covenant promise to his people. In the same way, when, <clears throat> when he has promised the Messiah who will come to make all things right and to destroy sin and death in its entirety, we need to trust. We need to trust God. Because he doesn't fulfill his promises half-heartedly. No, he completes it fully and totally and absolutely. And so, in recognition of this day, this day that which, on which the enemies of God were meant to celebrate, the reverse occurred, and instead, the Jews come up with their own holiday, their own celebration, and they call it Purim. It's interesting when we read this, when we, when we read how he came up with this holiday Purim, there's no real mention of God, right? There's no, mention, not no real, there's no mention of God at all, right? And this is a holiday that has been concocted, that has been instituted by man. And yet, this holiday, and just like Christmas and just like Easter, right? Nowhere in the Bible does it say, like, Celebrate Christmas and celebrate Easter. You might have never thought of it that way, but there's no commandment in the Bible to say, like, on December 25th, you guys got to go to church. Nothing nothing in there. These are man-made holidays. But man-made holidays, man-instituted holidays as a sign for what God has done for his people. Right? Purim, Christmas, Good Friday, Easter. And you know what I'm so happy that you guys come to church on Good Friday and Christmas and Easter. One of my those are my favorite days of the year. But these are man-made. They serve great purposes, right? They're pointing our hearts to God and you know Advent does this, Lent does this, like these are all man-made, right? They point our hearts to God. Very good stuff, right? What God has done through Jesus Christ our Lord on the cross. Um, but and these are good things, and we should continue to do them. But God, in his grace, has also instituted signs that point to his goodness, his mercy, his grace in his son, Jesus Christ. And we talked about it a little bit in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And those are the ordinances. Every the simple, ordinary means by which God is pointing us to himself. And that is meant. That is cause for celebration because those are celebrations. Sometimes we feel like, yeah, maybe, maybe we feel like, uh, oh, I wish I was, uh, I wish I could feel like the power of the Holy Spirit, and I wish God would just come down and like lightning and thunder. Like, why can't He just show me who He is and how He is and what He is? Right? Why can't I? What, what, where's where's my big spiritual moment? But the beauty. But, The beauty of our faith and the beauty of what God has provided for us in his grace is that we don't need one big giant party because we have 52 parties a year. We have 52 celebrations a year. Every Sunday when we come here and we gather as God's people and we hear the word of God together and on those days where we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and we break bread. One, well, we get the little packets, but you get what I mean, right? You, we break open the packages and we eat bread together, and we drink the wine juice, the juice together. These are the signs that God has instituted, pointing us to what He has done for His people. And so, in a sense, every Sunday is pure every Sunday is a celebration of what God has done for us. And so our enemies were meant to celebrate, but the reverse occurred. And so uh, finally, and it's weird to end on kind of a down point, uh, but actually, is this a down point? The final point is this. The future looked hopeless and bleak, but the reverse occurred. Now, We actually don't see this specific point in Esther. Why? Notice chapter 10. Very odd little chapter. Three verses. How does it end? It ends like this. The king of Persia still exists. That's how it ends. Yeah, it talks about Mordecai, but it specifically says Mordecai was second in command. Who's first in command in Persia? It's the king. King Ahasuerus the very king who has essentially enslaved Esther to be his queen. The same king who is essentially enslaving Mordecai to do his bidding and to do his taxes. It's the same king who has almost unfettered control over the Jewish people, over God's people. The king of Persia is yet on the throne. That's what we read in chapter 10, still subjecting the people of God To slavery. And yet we know that there is a greater king. A greater king who indeed not only will come but has come. And his name is Jesus Christ. And this king, he does not rule with the sword, he does not rule by subjecting his people to slavery. Indeed, he does not come to serve, he does not come to be served but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this king has died for you and he has died for me. And yet he lives. He was raised on the third day so that we might live in him and that we might know that death is truly defeated and conquered. And you know what? The king of glory will come again. The king of Persia is long past, but the king of glory will come again we live in a world that is utterly broken we live in a world where the red Sox can win world series we live in a world that we you don't need to be a theologian or a philosopher we live in a world that's messed up and yet our hope our eternal hope and our eternal peace is this that jesus christ is lord jesus christ has come And Jesus Christ will come again. Let's pray. Father, who are we to be recipients of this everlasting covenant with you, to be in this relationship with you in which we know a peace everlasting, a joy unending, and a love overflowing? And yet, God, that is your grace over us, And so, God, may we celebrate the victory that we have in Christ, just as the Jews in um, Esther chapter 9 celebrated. May we celebrate all the more, even as we come every Sunday and join in fellowship with our brothers and sisters of the faith, joining in communion and fellowship and praise and worship and the sitting under the word of God together. Father, would you bless this church, bless Crossway, that our hope would not be in the things of man, that our hope would not be in, in our own earthly relationships or in institutions or in governments, but, Lord, that our hope would be in Christ and Christ alone. For all of these things, like the king of Persia, will fade away, but the glory of the Lord shines forever. In Jesus' name I pray.